You're saying that you want the best cases. No shit. Who doesn't? I have yet to come across a law from in the entire United States of America that tells me they do not want the best cases. So why should they go to you? I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. This is Jessica, head of coaching strategy at Crisp, and today we're flipping the script for another special edition episode to get Michael's take on the importance of setting and reinforcing high standards in your organization, how to raise the bar for your team's contributions, and why world-class results are earned, not given. If you could just say, hey, I only want the best leads, only want catastrophic cases for that matter. In fact, if a case is below seven or eight figures, I don't want leads like that. You think there's some magic here? You think you can just go in and say, hey, just don't send me any leads uh, unless it's going to be an eight-figure catastrophic case. And Facebook says, okay, understood, sir. That'll be $2 a click, you think? No. What are you, nuts? That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Welcome back for another AMMA. We are back. It's almost like we sit down and do these things, not doing consecutive ones and recording two or three at a time, right? So to be able to release into the future, it's almost like we sit down to speak for 18 to 25 minutes or so. Uh, oops, spoiler. Anyway, <laughs> welcome to the AMMA. I've got amazing Jessica here with me. I'm excited to hear what the questions are. But before we get to the questions, a quick interlude from our sponsors. Just kidding. There's no sponsors. So here's the deal. All right. We keep the podcast free and we keep it unfiltered and we can say whatever we want. And our guests get to say whatever they want because it turns out that people really like that. So in return, there is a fee for the podcast. And we ask that you share the podcast with your friends, your family, or anyone that you believe might enjoy the podcast or might benefit from it. And go leave a five-star review. In fact, go leave one right now. In fact, if I see your name pop up after this podcast is aired in the reviews, all right, you mention yourself by name or you mention your firm name or whatever it is, and you leave a five-star review, I'm going to send you something special. So I'll be on the lookout for this is going to be for anybody in the month, let's say February and March. So here's how it all works, okay? You send us the questions. You usually text us 404-531-7691, a real phone number. The questions you submit, Jessica asks on the podcast, and then we answer them to the best of our ability. That's the MMA. The other two types of podcasts are our standard interview format. We bring on expert thought leaders from the legal industry and beyond. So we bring in all sorts of people, expert trial attorneys, elite athletes, best-selling authors, and just incredible human beings. And then for those of you that have not been keeping up with every single episode over the last three plus years, we bring back the Encore Edition, some of the most popular episodes we've ever featured on this podcast. It's incredible. I really enjoy listening to them over and over and over again because sometimes the insight you gain two years ago may not be the same insight that you gain today. Sometimes you hear things differently. It's like why you reread books. Anyway, that being said, let's turn it over to you, Jessica, for the AMMA. All right. Today sounds like it's going to be a fun one. So buckle Indeed. up. All right. So topic that I am quite passionate about myself would be standards. So let's get right on in with this one. I've heard you mentioned the importance of setting standards 
How do you define high standards within the context of a law firm's growth and success? Yeah, so standards are what make the world go round. It is the difference between one organization and another organization. We all have them, so we just have varying levels of them, right? And a, and a standard in one firm is going to be different from a standard in another firm. And everybody has their own definition of world-class, in quotes. So standards, I believe, are the minimum that you're willing to tolerate, right? Minimum behavior, minimum output, minimum performance. Like, you define what that is. And it's a funny thing how standards exist. Let's look at different types of organizations, the ones that we regard to have high standards, like the Four Seasons of the Ritz-Carlton, we regard as having high standards, let's say, in the hospitality space. Or you look at Rolls-Royce, the auto manufacturer, that's regarded as high standards. They hand-built every single car, right? Compared to other cars that may have defects and so on, like, you don't really see a whole lot of that with Rolls-Royce. They're very high-quality vehicles. Et cetera, et cetera. Apple, you know, you know Apple seems as having very, very high standards and love their products. So why does not every organization like Apple or the Four Seasons or Rolls Royce or, you know, let's say winning organizations in sports like the Patriots of old or, or, you know, University of Alabama, University of Georgia, et cetera. Why doesn't every organization win a championship every single season? Why isn't every organization Apple and why isn't every hotel like the Four Seasons of the Ritz Carlton? Like, why don't they all have those levels of customer service standards? That I think is a truly interesting question. And it's just because we're all different. We have different motivations, different levels of commitment, and high standards require a greater level of commitment than low standards. I think it starts there. There's organizations that are willing to do more and are willing to dedicate more time, more money, more resources to operating a certain way. I mean, there's certain organizations that are more ambitious and there's teams that are more ambitious. They want to have a higher place in the market to them. It's not acceptable to you know, just have a winning season, they go for a Super Bowl or they want to absolutely make sure that they're, you know, they make it to the playoffs every single season. That's the standard that they've defined. But how does it start? And when you look back through history, really how a standard begins and how you go from like a low standard to a high standard is typically a person or a group of individuals come into an organization and they get angry. That's how it happens. Okay. So somebody at some point says, enough of this shit. Okay. And they can no longer imagine maintaining that certain level of existence any longer, really. I mean, that's at that point, they say that's it. Okay. These low standards come to an end. These high standards are the new normal. And then once you have those standards, that means that you are unwilling to accept any less. Basically, standards aren't just the fact that you put some poster on the wall. You said, here's the standard. They only work when they're reinforced. So if you say, hey, everybody, we're going to show up every day at nine o'clock. Somebody shows up at nine o five. It is acceptable to show up at nine o five. The nine o five is actually the standard, not nine o'clock. You endorse what you tolerate. Absolutely. So Again, this requires a great degree of energy and inertia to constantly reinforce because if you don't reinforce standards, well, then you're going to fall to the lowest whatever is acceptable within said organization. So I would say that those who have high standards are doing much more reinforcing and are much less complacent and much more committed than those who have, let's say, lower standards. And if you look at like high standards versus low standards, let's say in a law firm, this is everything from the client experience to how the phones are answered, everything from how someone is welcomed into the firm, the entire process that they have in terms of working with the law firm before, during, after, every aspect. I mean, down to when you come into the office, how they're greeted, they're offered a beverage. If they're followed up with, if somebody sends them a card on their birthday, everything across the board, like, what, you know, what, how's that done? But then internally in the law firm, it comes down to things like how is the team trained and what type of people are they attracting? And like, do you have the best attorneys and the best paralegals and the best office staff, and are they constantly investing in their training and development and reinforcing the standards internally in the organization? Because what you're going to see outward is, is really a, a function of what is being reinforced internally. So it's not easy. It's constant, constant work. But 
that's the only way you can actually become true, truly world-class. And then the other thing I would say that is that organizations that have high standards tend to outperform organizations that have low standards. And those that, the organizations that outperform, those that are at the top of market, those that are more competitive, generally have more market share and are more profitable, certainly, and are more successful as a result because they maintain a competitive edge because of their higher standards. So that's kind of the gist of how I would define standards. There's obviously a lot more to it. We could talk about it for hours, but the best part is, and I think if you take away one thing from this answer is that you get to decide what your standards are. I remember when we were starting Crisp in the early days, I always wanted us to have high standards and a great client experience and great customer service. And you know, just wanted the brand to be strong. I would preach this to the organization, but at the time we had no proof of those things. So it just didn't exist. So that required a lot more push and a lot more pull just because you're saying, hey, I want us to be great, but we weren't great, right? And people look at you like, hey man, you're inconveniencing me. Or I don't know that I agree that we should be operating like this or at this level or at this standard. Of course not, right? Because somebody again has to get angry and then reinforce said standard. And there's a lot of people that are no longer with the organization today and now have been replaced people that have higher standards and are willing to commit to those standards and operate at those standards. And of course, after you've had a few winning seasons and a few successful years, it gets much easier to reinforce high standards because now people come into the organization and they're like, this is how it's done. They know coming in. You look at all the seasons at Alabama before Nick Saban wasn't a very successful organization. Or even at the University of Georgia, they won a national title since 1980. And then Kirby comes in, we went back-to-back national titles. Somebody has to come in and get angry and say that what we were doing before is no longer acceptable. Here's how we're going to do things going forward. There's going to be people who buy in and continue with the organization. And those who don't buy in, they need to be exited from the organization. And then you have to then reinforce and say, we are now going to operate differently. And you got to commit to doing that every single day until eventually you catch up to the standard now that you have set and reinforced. And now the, you know, the organization, actually the performance, you're starting to see the output now align with what you want to see as a result of those standards. But it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of energy and you're fighting against inertia. You're constantly, constantly, constantly swimming upstream because it is human nature to do the absolute minimum possible. And most organizations, it's easier to leave a bunch of trash on the floor than to pick up every single piece and make sure everything is pristine and spotless and everything smells good and looks good and that everything performs well. I mean, that that is not easy to do. So that's why there's differing standards. I mean, Jessica, you and I do this all the time. Every time we walk into a restaurant, every time we walk into a business, it's immediately a business conversation. We're like, we're evaluating their standards. We're oh, evaluating how, t- how long it takes for someone to answer the phone. We're evaluating how long it takes someone to check in on a table. We're evaluating to see if they're actually writing something down, if they're remembering things. Like, what are all the areas of leakage, right? Where are all the friction points in the organization? We'll go to like, you know, a restaurant, like a nice one, like a Michelin star restaurant. They have a very different standard in terms of how they train their staff. They get everybody working in the kitchen. They have just that entire experience is completely different than if you go to a type of restaurant where no one gives a shit. So you just get to decide, you know, what type of organization you are and whether you're going to be a dirty diner or a Michelin star restaurant. That's one way to put it. That's right. All right. Next one here. Some attorneys on my team are consistently underperforming, but it's tricky to address without damaging morale. Can you share your thoughts on raising performance standards gracefully? Well, I don't know that I can is the short answer. I don't know that I can share this because you used the word gracefully. And I don't know that I believe in gracefully anything. I know we talked about this on a previous AMA. Like you're worried about hurting morale. You're thinking about how do I do this delicately? How do I do this gracefully? Are you trying to get this done? Are you trying to just find ways to not make progress? Because if you have high performers, they want to be around other high performers. And it's like that expression we give. I know we talk about the print 
where somebody is trying to be so gentle when they're firing someone that they scramble the words on a whiteboard, you're fired, and then lead the room and say, hey, figure out what this says. And then the person has to figure out that they're fired, right? Because someone wants to be gentle and they want to be able to give them grace. Or even better, you fire someone so politely and so gracefully that they show back up to work the next day. Yes. That is a true story. I know exactly. I know exactly the exact story you're talking about. (laughs) Sometimes, you know, you have to fire someone and they end up leaving your office with a bonus, right? And a higher salary. Then they're still there. Wow. Right? That was graceful, huh? So as Chris Voss, who is a good friend and we learned so much from what he's shared, and he actually shared this on one of the first podcasts we did, is that it's not really a good way to uh, slowly cut someone's head off, okay? Because that's torture. So you want to be quick. And you want to be able to get to the point. So if the question is, it's like, how do I address something gracefully? I mean, again, I understand the nuance of the question in the sense that you don't want to come in all guns blazing and, you know, be a jerk or anything like that. You want to be mindful of the fact that sometimes you don't want to criticize in public. You want to do that in private one-on-one with the person. You want to provide them with, you know, just clarity around what they can do to improve and how they can grow and, you know, training opportunities and development opportunities. You want to, you know, obviously be clear on those things. You don't want to just come in and say, you guys suck and you need to do better, right? Because that's not very helpful to someone because they don't know what they need to do better or why they suck. I guess my point here is, is though I would be less worried about hurting morale because I think you will improve morale in the long term when you address performance and you raise the standard of the organization. Because winning is fun and being successful is fun. And the best people want to be at the best organizations and winning organizations. You really have to decide for yourself what type of organization you're going to be and whether you're going to tolerate low performance over high performance, because that's exactly what you're doing. The high performers are just performing high because that's just who they are, but you're willing to tolerate low performance. So it's only a matter of time before the high performers saying, screw this, right? Like, why am I performing at this level when these other people get to exist performing at that level? And I'm just going to lower my performance. I'm going to quietly quit, all right? I'm going to be here and receive a paycheck, but I'm going to do just enough to not get fired, right? Isn't that that the typical approach here? So I would be less concerned about doing it gracefully and I'd be more concerned about doing it effectively. And sometimes you have to say something that's going to bother someone. And that's okay that it bothers them because if it didn't bother them, they wouldn't care. And it's also making it clear that what are the non-negotiables? What are the minimum standards of the organization? What are you no longer going to tolerate? At the same time, I love you and let's help you get there. If you're committed to it, but if they're not committed to doing better and they don't want to be better and they don't want to be more successful or they just don't really want to buy into the standard that you set for the organization, well... That's not going to be an option at the organization, unfortunately, for them. Stay enjoying or leave in peace. Yeah, stay enjoying, leave in peace. You got it. But fortunately, for all the high performers, they're going to give you high fives and the morale is going to improve tremendously because you did the thing that they've wanted to see all along. And now you don't have a bunch of ankle weights pulling you down. So again, I don't think it's malicious, right? They don't mean to be a low performer. Sometimes they just don't know what they're doing. And sometimes they need a bit of help and support. And sometimes they need to have standards reinforced for them because you have not provided them with enough guardrails around what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. Because if they're able to come in every single day and collect a paycheck doing the things that they are doing, they don't believe they're doing anything wrong. Who could blame them, right? They get to operate as a low performer and exist. And you think their morale is high? That's funny. All right. To round this one out. So I want to raise the standards for our marketing efforts to attract better clients. Can you share some insights on setting high standards for marketing strategies that yield, uh-oh, quality leads? As a matter of fact, I can. So if you want to raise the marketing standard in your firm, and we wrote a book on it it's called The Game Changing Attorney. If you're listening to this podcast, you can get the book on Amazon. 
It still holds up today. In fact, it's more popular today than, ironically, than when it came out in 2018. But if you want to attract better quality leads, because I'm assuming that you want to convert those into better quality clients and, you know, better quality clients typically means more discerning clients or ones that have a higher average case value. So that leads to a higher profit margin and helps the firm grow and be more successful, right? So if you want that, here's how you do it. You don't actually have to do anything more, surprisingly, right? It's kind of like an interesting answer to this question. You have to very clearly decide who you're not for, okay? So this is like, how do you put standards in marketing? Well, when you're addressing your audience, if you're saying that we target injured people, well, anyone can get injured. Babies can get injured. Middle-aged people can get injured, right? Like you could be 90 years old or two years old. You can be male or female. You could be have any level of interest and do anything, but let's just market to the world, right? In fact, let's, let's market in the entire state. Let's just try to get everything we can. And that's exactly what's happening. You're casting such a wide net that you have not really differentiated your firm specifically about who you're trying to attract. And yet you're saying that you want the best cases. No shit. Who doesn't? I have yet to come across a law firm in the entire United States of America that tells me they do not want the best cases. Everybody wants the best cases. So why should they go to you? Well, you don't deserve them. Let's be completely honest, right? If you're not getting the best cases in your market, you probably don't deserve to get the best cases for a number of reasons. But let's address at least the marketing ones, right? And I'm not going to focus on, let's say, on having trial skills and, you know, having those competencies internally, but although that is extremely important. But let's say from a marketing and positioning standpoint, which is what gets people to pick up the phone and call your firm, they've got a lot of options. You've got thousands of law firms in every single market. And, and let's say in your city, they could go after, you know, they could hire anybody. So why would they hire you? And you have to be able to clearly differentiate yourself of saying that this is who we're for. So some of the most successful law firms that we work with, they become experts in their space. Maybe they're expert trucking lawyers, which means they've written books on trucking. They host trucking organizations. They provide workshops and trainings and webinars and seminars, and they put out trucking content. And they've been doing it for over a decade. Okay. That's one example. Or maybe you want motorcycle accident cases. Okay. Now, the ones that we see that are successful, they have great grassroots relationships with motorcycle riders and those that are part of motorcycle clubs within their community. And it's taken them decades to build those relationships and they're constantly reinvesting in their community. Okay. Let's say you want to focus on medical malpractice cases. Well, you have to be very clear that this is exactly what we do because we don't do medical malpractice and family law and estate planning and criminal defense and traffic tickets and all sorts of other bullshit, right? Because we don't want to miss anything. Well, that's why you're getting all the generic stuff because you have to dial in and you have to be able to find for your team, for your marketing department saying, here's who we're not for. If you're saying, I want trucking cases, then when an auto accident case comes in, you got to refer it out or you got to say, hey, that's not for us because we only take on trucking cases because we're the, we're the trucking lawyers, right? I almost dropped an F-bomb there. Okay. So my point is, is that if you want more discerning clients, you got to narrow your focus. And as a result of narrowing your focus, that allows you to dial in your message and that allows you to basically say, here is exactly who we're for, why we're for them. And that then is going to come out in videos. It's going to come out in social media posts. It's going to come out in the blog posts that you write, in the emails that you send, in the ads that you run. And then you're going to do it again and again and again and again for years until you are known as focusing on attracting those specific types of clients in cases that's who you're for. And as a result of that, you're going to start getting those cases over time. And the friends of these people, they're going to refer other people to you. Other lawyers will call upon you and say, hey, this guy focuses specifically on animal law, okay? They represent animals, right? Now, I'm not talking about dog bites. That's representing the human. I'm talking about the animals, okay? I'm just giving an example. I think it's hilarious that animal law exists, but it is necessary. That being said, if you were seen as the expert in that space, then over time, because of that's the content you're putting out, that's the messaging you're putting out, and you're not taking on contracts and NDAs, you're practicing animal law, right? 
and you're not taking on cannabis cases because you practice animal law, and you're not taking on soft tissue auto accident cases or DUIs because you practice animal law. But as long as you continue to take everything that comes in the door, you're not going to be for anyone. And because you're too broad and too generic and you're worried about missing out on anything, when in reality, all you're doing is you're missing out on the best clients and the best cases. And that's why you're not getting the best leads. Because if you could just say, hey, I only want the best leads and I only want trucking leads or I only want motorcycle leads, I only want catastrophic cases for that matter. In fact, if a case is below seven or eight figures, I don't want leads like that. You think there's some magic here? You think you can just, you know, in Google or in Facebook or in Instagram, go in and say, hey, just don't send me any leads uh, unless it's going to be an eight figure catastrophic case, please. And Facebook says, okay, understood, sir. That'll be, you know, $2 a click, you think? No. What are you, nuts? Like, you're going to have to invest thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. You have to look at it from a cost of acquisition standpoint, right? It's like, you want the best, but for every thousand leads that come in, if you're marketing broadly, maybe you got a diamond in the rough there, right? So it's basically took you still a thousand leads and let's say you're spending close to 500 to $1,000 in lead, a thousand thousand. Wow. You just spent a million dollars. Wait, is it a million? Yes. To acquire a case. The one you wanted. That was an expensive cost of acquisition. Hmm. Spent a million dollars to maybe acquire a million dollar case. Dumb. So my point is, the thing that, f- that frustrates me, this is good, this is when you know the podcast is getting good, is that I'm giving an answer that is the answer, but it's not the answer that people want to hear. So they're going to continue to buy into this bullshit when they see some ad or some lead service that's going to tell them that there's some easy way to do this. What do we know? We've only worked with over a thousand law firms. What do we know? It's not like we see this play out every single day. Right, but we're not attorneys. You're right. You're right. By the way, the absolute worst place to get advice for how to grow and scale your business or how to market is from another lawyer. I mean, just let's, let's be completely honest. It's like me taking business advice from a doctor or a dentist. The point is, is that there is no easy road. Like you can't take the elevator. You got to take the stairs. The people that you see getting the types of cases that you want, they didn't just get those cases overnight. They became the type of people and they built the type of firms that were deserving of receiving said cases. That means that they had to make commitments for years and decades. And this came from everything internally to how they were investing their time, to the level of training and education and competency, to the marketing that they were doing, to the commitment that it took them to invest in their firm, in their communities, in their marketing, and their brand. It's not like they just put up a Facebook page and started attracting seven and eight figure cases, right? And even when they put up that page, they were making posts sometimes for years and putting in thousands and tens of thousands of dollars building up their brand because guess what? Other people are doing that too and it's competitive. But if you decide you're not going to take part in this and you're trying to go the easy route and saying, well, I'm just going to continue to buy leads, well, then you're never going to get there ever. And then years will pass by and you'll eventually get to a place of saying, you know what? I wish I would have started three or five years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And you will have wished you would have started, but at that point, guess what? It's going to be even more expensive. And it's only going to continue to get more expensive because it's getting more and more competitive because it's a bidding system, guys. So my point is, is that if you want better quality leads, then I think you need to dial in your message and dial in your audience and start narrowing your focus and make a commitment to being very clear on not just who you're for, but who you're not for. And you got to start saying no. And you got to stop looking for the shortcut of the easy road because you're just bullshitting yourself and you're wasting your time and your money. And if you're actually truly committed to doing this right, then go to chriscoach.com. We'll help you out. I said, we don't run any ads, but look, I'll promote my own stuff, whatever. It's all good. Or I don't know, take 10 years and you know, beat your head against the wall and try to figure it out on your own. Or ask a bunch of lawyers at a bunch of conferences what they did, especially the ones that you know, 10, 20 years ago started investing in billboards, right? At a time where nobody else was investing in billboards or the ones invested in the yellow pages that you know, really built their practice then and are telling me what to do now. 
Anyway, it's up to you. Do whatever you want. My life is good. And on that, we'll see you next time. All right. See you. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney podcast with Michael Mogul. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that we can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of Michael's book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot Michael a text at 404-531-7691 and ask him any question you'd like. You might just hear the answer on the next episode. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it will help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit LegalPodcast.com.